0: Hello and welcome to the third episode in Herbert Smith Freehills' podcast series on construction contract and claims management. For those of you who are new to this podcast series, my name is Noe minna and I'm the professional support lawyer in the London Construction Disputes team. In this episode, I'm joined by James Doe, who is a partner in the London office and UK Head of Construction and Infrastructure Disputes to discuss how to assess the legal merits of a claim with a particular focus on claims brought by contractors against employers. Hello James. Hello. James, based on your many years of experience, what is the first thing you look for when undertaking a legal assessment of construction claims?
1: Well, the first thing to do is to identify the type of claim being made. In my view, there are generally two types of claim which are normally made in respect of construction and engineering Mm -hmm. contracts. Firstly, those made pursuant to particular entitlement or right prescribed by the contract itself. The most common claim of this type would be for a variation under the contract. The second type of claim is for breach of contract, where there is a claim that a particular term of the contract has been breached. For example, breach of an obligation to provide access to the site by a particular date, or to provide comments on the design by a certain date. If a claim is properly presented, it will clearly identify which of these two types of claim is being made. And in my opinion, it would be entirely legitimate for an employer to reject a claim which does not identify the legal basis on which the claim is being made. Although, being helpful, the employer could ask that the contractor make it clear on what legal basis it is making the claim and resubmit its claim on that basis.
0: So, taking the first type of claim, what are the key issues you look for when assessing the merits of a claim made pursuant to a contractual entitlement or right?
1: Well, if the claim is being made pursuant to a clause of the contract, then the first step is to identify which clause or clauses are being relied upon and to analyse those clauses. Specifically, analyse whether the clause does in fact give rise to an entitlement, and if it does, in what circumstances that entitlement arises.
0: James, you mentioned variations as an example. What would you be looking for in the case of this type of claim?
1: The entitlement to claim for a variation will often require a particular procedure to be followed. A failure to follow that procedure may well prevent a valid variation being made. An important aspect of any claim for a variation is the existence of an instruction from the employer to alter the scope of works, to provide something different from what the contractor was originally obliged to provide. Under the terms of a conventional construction contract, a variation cannot arise unilaterally by acts or omissions of the contractor. The instruction does not necessarily have to comply with a particular format, unless the contract is specific about the form they are to take, and clearly make that a condition precedent. Otherwise, any form of written communication is likely to suffice. The key point is this. Has the employer clearly instructed the contractor to alter the scope of works?
0: OK, and assuming that the employer has given an instruction to alter the scope of works, what must the contractor show?
1: The contractor needs to identify this instruction in its claim, otherwise there is a legitimate ground for the employer to reject it. In these circumstances, the employer would request that the contractor identify such an instruction before the claim is assessed. In my experience, problems can arise where a contractor considers an alteration to the scope of work to be necessary or beneficial to the project. It seeks an instruction from the employer to implement the change, but no instruction is given. In these circumstances, the contractor must decide whether to proceed with the alteration or simply provide the original unaltered scope. While some per sympathy with the contractor might be justified, without an instruction, the contractor never had the authority to alter the scope of work, has likely breached the contract because it has not delivered what it promised to deliver, and probably has no legal basis to claim a variation.
0: So in respect of a variation, the first thing to consider is whether there is a clear instruction from the employer that the scope of work should be altered. The form of that instruction may well be less important, but the contractor needs to show that such an instruction has been made in some form. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Substance over form is often the right and fair approach to take. That being said, some contracts may make the use of a particular form a condition precedent to claim. In those circumstances, a failure to comply with the form might well render a claim invalid. However, experience suggests some arbitral tribunals would somehow try to work around such a condition precedent.
0: And what other types of claim can arise pursuant to a specific term of the contract?
1: There are many other examples. Depending on the form of contract, these might include claims for force majeure, ground conditions, uh, changes of law and actions of government authorities.
0: And what other issues need to be considered when assessing a claim made pursuant to the terms of the contract?
1: The topic of claim notices has been dealt with in, in some of the other episodes in this podcast series, but the important point to make is that a failure to provide timely notice may well render a claim invalid, irrespective of the underlying merits. A classic example would be clause 20.1 of the 1999 FIDIC suite of contracts, which is more commonly used in the market than the 2017 suite. The 1999 FIDIC contracts require notification within 28 days of the contractor becoming aware, or when it should have become aware, otherwise the claim is time-barred. In other words, the contractor no longer has the right to additional time and money if it fails to notify within the time limits.
0: And is there anything else that needs to be considered when making a claim under the contract?
1: The measure of any financial compensation payable will often be prescribed under the contract, For example, under a 1999 FIDIC form of contract, a contractor is expressly entitled to its costs caused by a particular event. Costs are defined as all expenditure reasonably incurred, or to be incurred, by the contractor, whether on-site or off-site, including overhead and similar charges, but does not include profit. This measure may well result in a different sum being recovered when compared to general damages for breach of contract. For example, the recovery under the terms of the contract would not normally be subject to any limitations of liability, i.e. not subject to an overall cap or indirect or consequential loss. The definition of cost may well include indirect or consequential loss, although not profit, provided they are reasonably incurred. In respect of a variation, how the contract price is to be varied as a consequence is also likely to be prescribed by the terms of the contract. It is particularly important to consider the application of any schedule of rates or prices, and whether any profit or contribution to head office overhead can be recovered.
0: James, you mentioned financial compensation, but what about extensions of time?
1: An extension of time, which is essentially a mechanism for obtaining relief from liquidated damages, is a common feature of claims under construction contracts. In some cases, the claim for an adjustment to the completion date to obtain relief from liquidated damages is the most important part of a contract claim, particularly when it is combined with a claim for prolongation expenses. A right to an extension of time can only be prescribed by contract under English law. There will be no implied term that permits the adjustment of the contractual completion date. Therefore, it is important to identify which clauses the contractor relies on when seeking an extension of time.
0: And what are the typical grounds on which construction contracts permit extensions of time?
1: Common grounds for an extension include variation or change orders, events of force majeure, delays, impediments or other acts of prevention caused by, or attributable to, the employer. It is also important to keep in mind that extensions of time and prolongation claims are related, being both based on delays to completion. But a valid claim for an extension of time does not necessarily result in an entitlement to prolongation expenses. For example, whilst the contract may entitle a contractor to an extension of time, the contractor may not be entitled to prolongation expenses, where it would have incurred those prolongation expenses in any event, as a result of its own delays.
0: What particular factual issues would you expect to see addressed by a contractor in its extension of time claim?
1: The key factual issues to be considered are the background to the relevant delay events, i.e. those events which are alleged to have caused the delay, and secondly, a delay analysis using an updated programme showing actual progress, which accurately identifies the critical path and the impact of the delay events on the critical path, thereby demonstrating the causal connection between the delay to completion and the delay events. Both are important, but the delay analysis is likely to be the more complex aspect of the claim and the one which will likely require the most attention by the employer assessing the claim.
0: So in relation to delay analysis, could you expand on the role of delay experts?
1: On all but the most straightforward of projects, it will normally be necessary for the contractor to hire outside consultants to prepare a delay analysis and for the employer to hire their own consultants to assess and determine whether the contractor's claim has merit, and possibly formulate their own analysis, which demonstrates the employer's assessment of the causes of delay. There are a number of high-quality delay consultants and expert witnesses who can provide these services, and whom we frequently advise clients to instruct. Delay analysis can be extremely complex, and the methods used have often been described as the dark arts, such as the difficulty in presenting the conclusions of this analysis in a clear way. We don't have time to discuss the various legal issues which need to be considered when preparing these analyses, but we are planning a separate podcast on them.
0: So to sum up, what would you say are the key takeaways for a party preparing or assessing a claim made pursuant to a particular entitlement or right prescribed by the contract?
1: The principal takeaways are, one, make sure you identify the specific clauses which are relevant to the claim, two, analyse whether those clauses have in fact been engaged based on the facts presented. For example, has an instruction been issued by the employer? 3. Carefully assess the basis on which compensation is payable under the terms of the contract. 4. Consider whether the contract permits an extension of time in the circumstances. Usually construction contracts are at least, if not more, generous to contractors in respect of time than they are in respect of money. 5. In respect of extensions of time claims, make sure a right to an extension of time exists under the contract and that there are clearly identified delay events and a delay analysis demonstrating an impact on the critical path.
0: Now turning to breach of contract claims, what would you say are the key steps to consider with these types of claim?
1: Similar to the claims under the particular terms of the contract, the claimant must identify which clauses of the contract have been breached. It is important to analyse the clauses relied upon to determine whether, in fact, those clauses contain an obligation on the responding party and if so, what exactly the obligation is. For example, some clauses may require the responding party to use reasonable endeavours or to otherwise act reasonably in certain circumstances. These are not absolute obligations in the sense that the respondent does not have to achieve a certain outcome. It only has to perform reasonably.
0: And what about establishing whether there has been a breach?
1: This requires evidence, evidence which needs to be provided by the claimant. Providing evidence that a breach has occurred should be a relatively straightforward task for a claimant if there has in fact been a breach. That is, unless the relevant obligation which the claimant asserts has been breached is qualified in some way. For example, an obligation to act reasonably to achieve a result within a reasonable time or to use reasonable endeavours to achieve a result. This will normally be a far more complex breach to prove. These standards may need to be judged objectively against how a competent contractor would have performed in the same circumstances. In an arbitration, to establish this properly will normally require evidence from an independent expert. In the context of assessing a claim in order to achieve a settlement, rather than fight an arbitration or litigation, instructing an expert may not always be an efficient or practical possibility. In these circumstances, it might be necessary for the claimant and responder to do what they can to bring stand back and assess these claims as objectively as possible, perhaps by asking another person within the organisation with no connection with the project to consider the claim's merits. Legal counsel, internal or external, may also take on this role of objective assessor. This is something we do on a regular basis.
0: And in terms of assessing damages for breach of contract, what are the key points to consider?
1: What can be recovered as damages for breach of contract will be subject to the governing law of the contract and the terms of the contract, such as any limitation of liability provisions. A contract governed by English law will be subject to the laws of remoteness of damage, such as those set out in Hadley and Baxendale. Under English law, not every loss suffered by the claimant as a consequence of a breach of contract will be recoverable as damages. Only those losses which satisfy the two limbs in Hadley and Baxendale can be claimed as damages. The loss which flows naturally from the breach, direct loss, and the loss which arises as a result of special circumstances, which are known to the respondent at the time of entering into the contract, otherwise known as indirect losses. As a result, it may be important that a claimant seeking damage explains the legal principles which apply to the assessment of those damages particularly if the damages being claimed include losses which arise solely as a consequence of the particular circumstances of the project, i.e. indirect losses.
0: You mentioned limitation of liability provisions. These are very common in the context of construction contracts. But how do they apply to a claim for damages for breach of contract?
1: These provisions would normally apply to any breach of contract claim. A common limitation is a prohibition of the recovery of indirect or consequential losses. But one thing to bear in mind particularly on international construction projects, is that different legal systems may interpret these terms differently, resulting in different entitlements to damages, meaning that some aspects of the claim may remain recoverable under certain legal systems, whilst being unrecoverable under other legal systems.
0: And in respect of claims for extensions of time, can these be made on the basis of a breach of contract?
1: An entitlement to an extension of time is not a remedy for a breach of contract under English law, but the terms of the contract itself may well provide that in the event of an act of prevention by the employer or a failure to perform its obligation causing delay, then the contractor will be entitled to an extension of time. The right to an extension of time can only be prescribed by the contract. It will not be imposed by law. This is certainly the case under English law, although other legal systems may have a different approach. An extension of time claim based on a breach of contract must therefore be presented as a claim under the terms of the contract.
0: And what about prolongation claims?
1: Claims for prolongation reflect the additional cost incurred as a result of the project taking longer to complete. These claims can be made under a contractual entitlement, if such an entitlement exists, but they can also be made on the basis of damages for breach of contract.
0: Now, what would you say are the guiding principles for a contractor looking to make a prolongation claim, or an employer who is on the receiving end of one?
1: Firstly, the additional duration of the project must have been caused by a breach of contract. If the contractor would have caused the delay in any event... There can be no claim for prolongation, unless the contract expressly provides for that. Normally, prolongation costs reflect the additional duration of on-site overhead, otherwise known as preliminaries. These should be relatively straightforward to calculate.
0: Contractors also try to claim for additional head office overhead, don't they? Could you perhaps explain the difficulties in claiming this type of cost?
1: There can be a number of reasons why this type of head of loss is not always recoverable. Not least, this cost would have been incurred in any event, regardless of the delays to completion. In order to claim head office overhead, a contractor normally needs to show that those costs could not have been recovered from other projects because of those delays, i.e. the delays meant that no new project could be taken on to recover those costs because the necessary resources were deployed on the delayed project. What also requires careful scrutiny is any claim for the additional cost of completing the existing scope of work due to delays. If the scope of work has not increased, there should be no increase in cost. So in this scenario, an increase in the prices due to inflation may be the only legitimate claim that can be made.
0: And what about claims for disruption, which is obviously different from a prolongation claim?
1: A claim for disruption relates to the increase in the cost to complete the scope of work due to inefficient working or delays to activities not on the critical path. Again, it may be that disruption costs can be recovered on the basis of a contractual entitlement, if that entitlement exists. But they can also be recovered as damages if caused by a breach of contract.
0: And again, what would you say are the guiding principles to be borne in mind when making or receiving disruption claims?
1: These claims require very careful scrutiny by an employer. Because they relate to inefficient working, it is usually necessary to compare actual productivity against a benchmark of planned productivity to demonstrate the inefficiency. The selection and calculation of the benchmark is very important to the validity of the claim. A common method of benchmarking is to identify productivity before the disruption event, and compare that with productivity afterwards. The difference forming the basis of the loss suffered. How that benchmark is calculated can make a huge difference to the value of the claim. For example, selecting a period of particularly high productivity as a benchmark would increase the value of the claim, potentially unfairly. Also, the loss in productivity may have occurred in any event, as a result of matters for which the contractor is responsible. In those circumstances, the reduced inefficiency would not normally be recovered. It is fair to say that destruction claims tend to be overstated. In many cases, they have no merit at all. So particular care must be taken with these type of claims.
0: James, we've now discussed various aspects of assessing the legal merits of a claim. Could you perhaps sum up the topic with a few concluding remarks and some words of wisdom from an experienced construction disputes practitioner?
1: Perhaps the most important point to remember is the principle that the party that asserts a claim must prove its claim. In my experience, it is not uncommon for claimants to attempt to shift the burden of proof onto the respondent. For example, a claimant may produce evidence that supposedly supports the claim. The claimant demands that the respondent prepare its defence by responding to each of the allegations made in detail. If the respondent is unable to respond with its own evidence, the claimant suggests this proves its own claim is valid. In fact, a detailed assessment of the claim often highlights fatal flaws, without the need of any rebuttal evidence. For example whilst the actions of the respondent may have caused certain activities to be delayed, if they did not impact the critical path, the respondent's legitimate response could be, I did breach the contract, but so what? It had no impact on the project. Remember, those who are making a claim must establish their entitlement. It is not for the respondent to explain why the claim is invalid. That being said, it is always advisable to prepare a considered response to each claim, as this will help prevent claims turning to disputes, which might ultimately result in arbitration or litigation. As a further general observation, contractors are more frequently entitled to additional time than they are to additional money. It is also important to make the distinction between submissions and arguments on the one hand and evidence on the other. It is not uncommon for claimants to present their own previous submissions or correspondence as evidence of the underlying merits of the claim. It is sometimes difficult to distinguish submissions from evidence in these circumstances, particularly if the original claim was made contemporaneously with the alleged event.
0: Well, thank you very much, James. For a recap of what was discussed during this episode, please take a look at our handy checklist for how to assess the legal merits of a claim, which can be downloaded from our website. The next episode in our Construction Contract and Claims Management podcast series will be on how to prepare for a potential construction dispute, which will be hosted by Olivia Liang, who is an associate in our Construction Disputes team. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode.